the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Democrats in the House of Representatives have heard enough and they are ready to announce articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. We are going to talk with Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and current University of Michigan law professor about what these articles mean and where we go from here. And we want to hear from you. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. It's Stephen Henderson on 1019 WDET, and this is Detroit Today. In a little bit, we're going to talk with Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and current U of M law professor, about the articles of impeachment that were announced against President Donald Trump. But first, in case you missed it, here is NPR's coverage of the announcement of those articles in Washington, D.C. For members of Congress, is the solemn act to take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. With great respect and gratitude uh, that I thank uh, the chairs of the committees, the six committees who have been working to help us honor our oath of office. I also want to thank the staff of those committees and the committee members uh, for all of their work over this period of time to help us protect and defend. I want to thank the Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Mr. Nadler, Chair of the Intelligence Committee, Mr. Schiff, uh, Chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Chairman, all of these chairmen, uh, Chairman Richie Neal of Massachusetts, the Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Elliot Engel of New York, the Chair of the Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters of California, uh, the Chair of the uh, Committee on Government Reform and Oversight, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. I also want to acknowledge the important work that was done by our dear and departed, may rest in peace, Elijah Cummings as chair of the, of the Oversight Committee. Now pleased to yield to the distinguished chair of the Judiciary Committee, Mr. Navin. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Over the last several months, the investigative committees of the House have been engaged in an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump's efforts to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 elections, efforts that compromised our national security and threatened the integrity of our elections. Throughout this inquiry, he has attempted to conceal the evidence from Congress and from the American people. Our president holds the ultimate public trust. When he betrays that trust and puts himself before country, he endangers the Constitution, he endangers our democracy, and he endangers our national security. The framers of the Constitution prescribed a clear remedy for presidents who so violate their oath of office. That is the power of impeachment. Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, 
The House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. The first article is for abuse of power. It is an impeachable offense for the President to exercise the powers of his public office to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or in injuring the national interest. That is exactly what President Trump did when he solicited and pressured Ukraine to interfere in our 2020 presidential election, thus damaging our national security, undermining the integrity of the next election, and violating his oath to the American people. These actions, moreover, are consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in our 2016 presidential election. And when he was caught, when the House investigated and opened an impeachment inquiry, President Trump engaged in unprecedented, categorical, and indiscriminate defiance of the impeachment inquiry. This gives rise to the second article of impeachment for obstruction of Congress. Here, too, we see a familiar pattern in President Trump's misconduct. A president who declares himself above accountability, above the American people, and above Congress's power of impeachment, which is meant to protect against threats to our democratic institutions, is a president who sees himself as above the law. We must be clear, no one, not even the president, is above the law. I want to recognize the great contributions of the investigative chairs, particularly Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, Foreign Affairs Chairman Elliot Engel, Committee on Oversight and Reform's former chairman, the late Elijah Cummings, and its new chairwoman, Carolyn Maloney, Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters, and Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal, who helped lay the foundation for the articles we are introducing today. I also want to thank my Judiciary C Committee colleagues who are critical in our work to hold the President accountable and in the drafting of these articles. Later this week, the Judiciary Committee will meet to consider these articles of impeachment and to make a recommendation to the full House of Representatives. We do not take this action lightly, but we have taken an oath to defend the Constitution. And unlike President Trump, we understand that our duty first and foremost is to protect the Constitution and to protect the interests of the American people. That is why we must take this solemn step today. Elections are the cornerstone of democracy and are foundational to the rule of law. But the integrity of our next election is at risk from a president who has already sought foreign interference in the 2016 and 2020 elections and who consistently puts himself above country. That is why we must act now. I want to turn now to Chairman Schiff, who will explain the evidence that supports these articles and the need for us to act with such urgency today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Speaker, and to my colleagues. Good morning. The framers of the Constitution recognized that someday a president might come to office who would abuse that office, betray the public trust, 
and undermine national security to secure foreign help in his reelection, and who would seek to abrogate the power of Congress to hold him accountable. They recognized this danger, and they prescribed a remedy, and that remedy is impeachment. It is an extraordinary remedy, and one that I've been reluctant to recommend until the actions of President Trump gave Congress no alternative. We stand here today because the President's continuing abuse of his power has left us no choice. To do nothing would make ourselves complicit in the President's abuse of his high office, the public trust, and our national security. The President's misconduct is as simple and as terrible as this. President Trump solicited a foreign nation, Ukraine, to publicly announce investigations into his opponent and a baseless conspiracy theory promoted by Russia to help his reelection campaign. President Trump abused the power of his office by conditioning two official acts to get Ukraine to help his reelection. The release of hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid that nation desperately needed, and a White House meeting with an ally trying to fend off Russian aggression. In so doing, he undermined our national security and jeopardized the integrity of our next election. And he does so still. The evidence of the president's misconduct is overwhelming and uncontested. And how could it not be when the president's own words on July 25th, I would like you to do us a favor, though, lays so bare his intentions, his willingness to sacrifice the national security for his own personal interests. And when the president got caught, he committed his second impeachable act, obstruction of Congress of the very ability to make sure that no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. The evidence is every bit as strong that President Trump has obstructed Congress fully, without precedent, and without basis in law. If allowed to stand, it would decimate Congress's ability to conduct oversight of this president or any other in the future, leaving this president and those who follow to be free to be as corrupt, malfeasant, or incompetent as they would like with no prospect of discovery or accountability. Now, some would argue, why don't you just wait? Why don't you just wait until you get these witnesses the White House refuses to produce? Why don't you just wait until you get the documents the White House refuses to turn over? And people should understand what that argument really means. It has taken us eight months to get a lower court ruling that Don McGahn has no absolute right to defy Congress. Eight months for one court decision. If it takes us another eight months to get a second court or maybe a Supreme Court decision, people need to understand that is not the end of the process. It comes back to us and we ask questions because he no longer has absolute immunity and then he claims something else, that his answers are privileged and we have to go to back to court for another eight or 16 months. The argument, why don't you just wait, amounts to this. Why don't you just let him cheat in one more election? Why not let him cheat just one more time? Why not let him have foreign help just one more time? That is what that argument amounts to. 
The president's misconduct goes to the heart of whether we can conduct a free and fair election in 2020. It is bad enough for a candidate to invite foreign interference in our political process, but it is far more corrosive for a president to do so and to abuse his power to make it so. Despite everything we have uncovered, the president's misconduct continues to this day, unapologetically and right now. As we saw when he stood on the White House lawn and he was asked, what did you want in that July 25th call? And he said the answer was a simple one. And not just a simple one on July 25th, but a simple one today, and that is he still wants Ukraine to interfere in our election to help his campaign. Even this week, the president's lawyer was back in Ukraine seeking to revive the same debunked conspiracy theory promoted at the president's behest. Which gets to the final and most pernicious of the arguments that we have heard in the president's defense that the president can do whatever he wants under Article 2, including get foreigners involved in our elections, and we should just, to quote the president's chief of staff, get over it. Ben Franklin said we have a republic if we can keep it. The president and his men say, you can't keep it, and Americans should just get over it. Americans don't get to decide American elections anymore not by themselves, not without foreign help. For the members of Congress, this is not a question of fact because the facts are not seriously contested. It is rather a question of duty. The President's oath of office appears to mean very little to him, but the articles put forward today will give us a chance to show that we will defend the Constitution and that our oath means something to us. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. You're listening to special coverage from NPR of the latest, the latest step in the impeachment inquiry. We just heard Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi introduce her committee chairs, uh, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler, also the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Those two men have been leading the investigation into President Trump and whether or not he committed impeachable offenses. And we heard there those committee chair, uh, chairman outline the content of the articles of impeachment. There will be two articles, one on abuse of power and a second article of impeachment will relate to obstruction of justice. So let's talk about what that means, the consequences of that. I'm joined in studio by NPR White House correspondent Aisha Roscoe, also NPR political correspondent Mara Liason. We also have NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell is on Capitol Hill. Uh, Mara, I want to turn to you first. What did you make of what you heard there? Well, <clears throat> we now know that the House has decided to keep this pretty narrow to just two articles, abuse of power. He solicited a foreign nation, Ukraine, to publicly announce an investigation into his opponent, something that would help him, uh, that was not congruent with the foreign policy of the United States. But also, I think the the second article, which is one that's probably less salient with the public, but is more serious, which is this separation of powers clash, that he obstructed Congress, that, uh, 
if the, the Democrats said if this is allowed to stand, then Congress Congress's ability to conduct oversight of the executive branch is decimated. In other words, the check and balance of two co-equal branches of government will be obliterated. And other presidents have clashed with Congress, have refused to turn over witnesses and documents. But the argument that the Democrats are making is that they never did this in such a categorical way. Usually other presidents kind of negotiate something in the end, but this is across the board, no documents, uh, no witnesses. And if you think Donald Trump or the Trump presidency is a stress test on democratic institutions, certainly the Democrats feel that he is in this case and that he'd be undermining a pretty important one. Aisha? And I, I think that that argument uh, is very real, regardless of what happens with impeachment. I do wonder, and I think it's it's something that this country is going to have to deal with, why would a president or future presidents comply with investigations from Congress? Like, if you can't, if you don't have to, if you can get away with it, I don't think any president or administration likes to be investigated. Why would you turn over evidence? Why would you turn over documents? I think that's a real question going forward for this country and what will happen with future presidents. It's a real affirmation of executive power uh, in this case. Um, Kelsey, I want to ask you this this whole idea that if President Trump is not held accountable, as Democrats say he needs to be for what they point to as impeachable offenses, in particular obstruction of Congress in this investigation. I, I mean, does that is that something Republicans talk about? Or do they raise the concern that by not holding President Trump accountable that this will somehow undermine the institution that they represent. It's really interesting because this is something that we have been exploring uh, with Republicans for more than a year. Uh, we've talked to many of them about their feelings about the separation of powers eroding uh, with each new president. And they do feel that in some ways that President Trump has gone around Congress. Uh, they talk about things that he did, like appointing acting people into positions of power instead of having them confirmed, like secretaries of, uh, of different agencies. They feel very uncomfortable with Trump's actions, but they never go as far as Democrats in what they want to do to kind of keep Trump reined in. They never want to take actual steps to keep Trump from using the powers the way he wants to use them. I do think it's really interesting, too, that they didn't really reference Robert Mueller or his reports, but they did talk about the foundation of a pattern of conduct that members have been discussing. They want to vote on articles that make clear the president's actions with regard to Ukraine didn't happen in isolation. Uh, Jerry Nadler, the Judiciary Committee chairman, called it a pattern of misconduct of inviting foreign interference in our elections. And that is something they want to make clear when they vote is that this right. is about a pattern of the president, not just what he did in Ukraine. Kelsey, we actually have a clip of uh, Chairman Nadler. Let's listen to this. We're still waiting on that clip of, of Chairman Jerry Nadler, but reaffirming some of what you just said about his arguments in about how the uh, president has abused his power, has obstructed Congress, and the long-term damage that could do to the democracy. I want to turn instead to the Republicans' arguments here, because we heard these laid out yesterday in front of the Judiciary Committee. Stephen Castor was the attorney who was representing the Republicans' point of view. Let's, let's hear hear him articulate the Republican defense. The record in the Democrats' impeachment inquiry does not show that President Trump abused the power of his office or obstructed Congress. To impeach a president who 63 million people voted for 
over eight lines in a call transcript is baloney. I mean, Mara, uh, we hear Stephen Castor there pointing to eight lines in the in the transcript. The White House released the summary of that July 25th phone call with President Trump. But Adam Schiff pointed out eight, ten words, rather. I would like you to do us a favor, though. That's right. For the Democrats, the mere ask was enough that, as Schiff said, President Trump solicited a foreign nation to publicly announce an investigation into his opponent, thereby helping him in the next election. That's enough for the Democrats. For the Republicans, they've put the bar much higher. They're saying he has to have explicitly said, if you don't do this, I will not give you military aid. Mm -hmm. And also, the Republicans say it's just eight lines. Democrats would say we've had hours and hours of testimony that Witness after witness corroborated the initial whistleblower account and went beyond that. No one has contradicted uh, what the president said in that transcript. And what's really interesting is the president decided to release the transcript, um, even though the Democrats are accusing him of unprecedented, categorical, indiscriminate defiance. He released that transcript because he thought it was exculpatory. In other words, he didn't do it because he respected Congress's oversight article one he powers. Thought it up. He, he thought, thought it would clear him. it up because it I, showed him being polite. I'd like to ask you a favor, not I'm going to break your legs. But it turned yeah. out not to have that effect. I want to play some more tape of what we just heard. We've got that clip now. This is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler. Throughout this inquiry, he has attempted to conceal the evidence from Congress and from the American people. Our president holds the ultimate public trust. When he betrays that trust and puts himself before country, he endangers the Constitution, he endangers our democracy, and he endangers our national security. And now this from the House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff. The evidence is every bit as strong that President Trump has obstructed Congress fully without precedent and without basis in law. If allowed to stand, it would decimate Congress's ability to conduct oversight of this president or any other in the future, leaving this president and those who follow to be free to be as corrupt malfeasant or incompetent as they would like with no prospect of discovery or accountability. So will this move Republicans in a Senate trial? Kelsey. Uh, it is hard for me to see how it will move many Republicans, if any. This is something that, as I said, they they do have some discomfort with the president's um, unwillingness to participate in the norms and even the regulations of the way that the White House is supposed to behave with relation to Congress. They have never been able to identify what they want to do about it. And for many of them, impeachment is a bridge far too far for them to get on board. They have a lot of voters who still support this president. You've been listening to special coverage from NPR News. We heard the Democratic committee chairs outline two articles of impeachment against President Donald J. Trump. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and current University of Michigan law professor, about the articles of impeachment that were announced against President Donald Trump. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, 
Thanks for tuning in. You heard it live here on NPR at 9 o'clock. House Democrats say they will move to formal impeachment hearings against President Donald Trump for the phone call that he had with the leader of Ukraine earlier this summer and a long trail of things that they say defy the bounds of his executive office. What do you think of this decision by House Democrats to impeach the president? Do you think that it will convince Republicans in the Senate to change their minds about whether the president should be impeached? And what do you think this might mean politically down the road? Next year, of course, is a presidential election year. Will this backfire on Democrats and hurt whoever the eventual Democratic nominee is? Or is this something that has to be done? Is this a line in the sand that must be drawn against the kinds of things that we have seen President Trump doing almost since he was uh, almost since he was elected in 2016. As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. I especially want to hear from folks who supported President Trump and maybe voted for him in 2016. What do you think of all of this? What do you think of this phone call with the leader of Ukraine? And what do you think of this response by House Democrats drawing up articles of impeachment based on that phone call and a number of other things? Do you think that the person you voted for, the person you supported, has gone beyond what he should be doing as the president of the United States? Or do you think that House Democrats are just playing politics and are upset that they lost the 2016 presidential election? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. And joining us to talk about this momentous day is Barbara McQuaid. She is a law professor at the University of Michigan and the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks very much, Stephen. Yes. So let's start with your reaction to these articles of impeachment that the House Democrats announced this morning. Are these the the kinds of things that make sense at this point? Are they responsive to the things that we saw the president do and what we heard in the hearings leading up to today? Yes, I think so. You know, one of the things we heard last week when we had the, the, the four law professors come testify is explaining the historical origins of impeachment. And I think that that ultimately informed the way that the articles were drafted, not as violation of any particular statute like bribery or extortion uh, or, um, you know, use of quid pro quo, that sort of thing, but instead more broadly as abuse of power and obstruction of justice. Um, And that's appropriate. I think that sometimes people get caught up in the idea that it must be a crime for it to be impeachable and then start looking at the uh, the elements of offenses um, in in that way. And impeachment is something very different from conviction for a crime. A president, after being removed from office for impeachment, could also then be prosecuted for a crime. But impeachment is not like a criminal prosecution. It says that we gave you this trust as our president, and you've done something to suggest that um, you are not fit to serve, not so much as a punishment, the way the criminal law looks backwards, but as a current and future harm that we are concerned that your ability to lead has been uh, for, 
fatally tarnished. We don't trust you to, to be the president. And in, in this instance, there's some danger of having you as president, especially when the harm relates to foreign influence and subverting elections, because then we can't use the political process to remove you. Impeachment is the only way out. And so I think for that reason, drafting them in the uh, terms of abusive power and obstruction of justice is uh, consistent with that theory. So uh, for a while, there was talk that these kinds of charges in these articles of impeachment would be too difficult for people to understand, and that bribery, which is mentioned in the Constitution in the impeachment clause and is something that most people have a pretty fair understanding of, was a better way to go for House Democrats. In other words, that this was an effort to convince or coerce the leader of Ukraine to do something that he was not otherwise inclined to do in exchange for military aid. Why not go that route? What What do you imagine is the calculus that held House Democrats back from going that far? Yeah, I imagine they did discuss that because, as you say, Stephen, bribery is specifically mentioned in the Constitution and would provide probably a compelling narrative for uh, arguing that this is impeachment worthy. Um, And I think in many ways the facts do fit a theory of bribery, which is defined as demanding a thing of value, an announcement of investigations, in exchange for the performance of an official act, releasing the military aid. So I think it fits. I think the um, the reason they may have um, withheld from using that is the fact that um, Republicans have made uh, some hay out of there being no direct evidence of a quid pro quo. Now, again, this isn't a criminal trial where you would have to prove, uh, follow the rules of evidence and uh, articulate uh, with direct evidence a quid pro quo. But I think to uh, fend off that talking point, they have instead charged it more broadly in terms of an abuse of power in, in, in case there is some concern about whether they can satisfy the element of a bribery offense, which would require them to show a quid pro quo. Instead, by framing it as an abuse of power, it's enough to say that he invited election interference from Ukraine and that he withheld military aid, even if he's unable to link the two. Linking the two, uh, one, one is leveraged for the other, makes it more egregious. But even without that link of quid pro quo, I think as framed, it's still impeachable conduct. What do you make of the charge from Republican members of the House that all of this is unfolding at a pace that does not imply a lot of care or caution and that their side of things is not being considered, that this is not a bipartisan act, but a a sole kind of pursuit of House Democrats? Well, two things. One is I don't know that it's particularly fast. The Bill Clinton impeachment went faster than this did. Um, so if you look at the historical record, um, it isn't uh, on a much of a different pace. I think it's uh, roughly equivalent to the pace of the Nixon impeachment. So um, I, I don't know that it is particularly fast. And to the extent it's been one-sided, that's because President Trump has refused to allow others to testify. Um, I don't know that what they would have to say, people like Pompeo and Mulvaney and uh, Bolton, uh, I don't know if what they would say would be supportive of the president. Perhaps that's the reason that he's refused to allow them to testify. But I don't think you can both um, prevent people from testifying and then complain about the brevity of the hearing and the uh, lack of testimony from all the relevant witnesses. So, and and that gets to a larger point here, which is 
the idea that this is playing out in the most partisan way and that that means it's almost going to be impossible to have the Senate remove the president, even if the House impeaches. And I think that raises an interesting question about the utility of all of this. What is the purpose of this in political terms if what it does is just agitate the divisions that that already exist? Is there a point that that sort of supersedes those political concerns that you think compels what the House Democrats are doing. It's it's an excellent point, Stephen, because it's a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of allocation of resources that could be spent on other uh, projects if Congress weren't focusing on impeachment, um, if if in the end it will simply be futile. But, but what's the alternative? The alternative would be to say, um, this president can do anything he wants because he has a Republican base in the Senate that will allow him to do anything he wants. And so, therefore, we should just stand idly by and give a pass to anything, no matter how egregious we believe it to be. Um, if uh, the House believes that this is an egregious abuse of power, um, and there's certainly support to, for that position, then do they not have a duty to stand up for what they believe is right and say that this is unacceptable? Um it at least goes down as a marker that President Trump was one of only three presidents to ever be impeached. And for other presidents who look at whether inviting election interference is appropriate or withholding military aid is appropriate and you'll get a pass, they can look to this moment in history and say, oh, um, no, this is something for which the House says impeachment is appropriate. And if I have a Senate that's not quite so friendly, I may not get the same kind of treatment that President Trump got. So it's more future looking, even if it can't be used to hold President Trump accountable. It can be used as a deterrent for future presidents and a time when the House held the line on what is acceptable for presidential conduct. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation about the announcement of articles of impeachment against President Trump made this morning by Democrats in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. We're going to continue our conversation with Barb McQuaid. And we are going to get to your calls, Bill in Bloomfield Hills, Frank in Livonia, Tara in Detroit, and Tom in Northwest Detroit. We will hear from you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the announcement this morning of articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the chairs of several different committees made those announcements this morning in Washington, D.C., after weeks of hearings in which people testified about the extraordinary things that President Donald Trump has done, both the call with the Ukrainian leader earlier this summer, and many other things that he has done that seem to go beyond the scope of what the presidency is supposed to be. We want to hear from you about what you think of these articles of impeachment, about the decision to impeach the president, and about our politics, especially our politics going into 2020, which is a presidential election year. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also 
Join us on Facebook or on Twitter, and we'll try to include you in the conversation here. Let's start with Bill in Bloomfield Hills. Bill, what's on your mind? Yes. Uh, I thought the the impeachment hearings, I watched them uh, closely, not all of them, of course, but I'm very much in favor of them. I think the president has abused his office. But my question for Barbara specifically is that uh, I wonder what the possibilities are, the prospects are through the Senate trial of getting the actual transcript of the call that's been hidden away uh, so well by the uh, president. Bill, that's a great question. I believe you're referring to the call with the Ukrainian leader, which we have seen a summary of from the White House. But of course, we have not seen the full transcript. Barb McQuaid, is that something that could come out during the impeachment process in the House or during the Senate uh, trial? I I think it won't, but it's such an interesting question because um, as Lieutenant Colonel Vindman testified, he knows that there are some uh, terms that were omitted from it, in fact, including the name of the company Burisma, um, where it was just listed as ellipses in the um, summary, I guess we'll call it. Um, Number one, I don't know if it exists. Number two, if it were to be subpoenaed, no doubt President Trump would um, exercise some sort of executive privilege, and that could result in some interesting um, court uh, navigation, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. It would go to Chief Justice Roberts um, of the Supreme Court, who would be presiding at the Senate trial. He would make a ruling on it of whether it comes in or doesn't come in. Um, And then if there's an appeal of that, it's actually the Senate themselves who get to decide the appeal. And so if they wanted to protect the executive privilege, they could do that. I think a really intriguing possibility is also whether a recording uh, of that call exists in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. My guess is that it does. Um, getting that from Ukraine um, would perhaps be difficult, but maybe easier than getting it from President Trump. So my guess is it will not come in um, because the Senate ultimately holds all the cards in um, in the Senate trial and I'm not certain whether it actually exists. Hmm. Again, Bill, I really appreciate the call and the really great question. Let's go to Frank in Livonia. Frank, Hi, uh, good morning. Um, you know, I'd really like to you know kind of look forward into um, you know the election process and you know what we need to do to uh, to change that and you know the way that we uh, you know run our elections. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that you know it wouldn't be a stretch to uh, you know charge all these politicians. With you know under the RICO laws, I mean it. It just is uh, you know the basic concept of how we finance elections. Just open a, uh, open ourselves up for this. Uh, you know I think what we need to do is have a Department of Elections. You know that uh, it, you know is taken out of the uh, fundraising that we do. Uh, you know until we get that in that you know people like Donald Trump and you know and uh, Bloomberg with a lot of money or they can you know gather. Uh, a bunch of special interests uh, with a lot of money. This is just going to continue. That, so I think we need to look forward. That, that's, a, that's a really interesting dimension to, to think about here, Frank. Barb McQuaid, I wonder what, what your reaction is to that. I think Frank is absolutely right that elections have evolved to be very different from the way they were originally constructed and imagined um, with the influx of money and also with the influence we're seeing on social media. And it would be great to spend some time with bipartisan uh, actors focusing on a better way to build elections. 
One challenge that exists there is the Supreme Court opinion in Citizens United that held that corporations are people um, and have First Amendment rights, um, which means that um, uh, they have the ability to make contributions, and there are currently uh, no limits on certain kinds of political action committee super PAC contributions to political campaigns, and, and that is what allows the influence of really big dollars in our elections. It would be nice to limit that in the same way that individuals are limited to uh, making contributions. Anyone, you know, the, the bundling and the the support that organizations can make to campaigns um, makes it really beyond the scope of, I think, what anyone anticipated when our election and democratic process was first considered. And so I think rethinking that process in light of all those factors would be really valuable. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, Frank, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Tara in Detroit. Tara, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning. Thank Hi. you for taking my call. I think that the um, articles of impeachment were definitely well thought through and very deserving at this time for the president because he has been an embarrassment to America. For anyone as a Republican to stand by and accept this bad behavior, that he is willing to throw America under the bus so that Russia is propped up because that's exactly what he's doing. He wanted Ukraine to meddle in our elections because he is not up for the fight to fight fair and go up against if Joe Biden is our uh, Democratic opponent. Mm. So it's overdue. It's well due. I'm going to throw an impeachment party at my <laughs> home tonight because, again, I, I think it's the best thing that Congress has done. And for Republicans not to do anything and to keep upholding this impetuous behavior by a grown child, because that's exactly what he is. And he needs to be held accountable. Uh, Tara, I, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts. I, I am not sure I love the idea of an impeachment party because I don't know that we should be celebrating this. I think this is a, a tragedy and a real problem in the in the institutions of, of our republic. But I but I completely understand what you're talking about, that that people, I think, have gotten to the point where they they really feel like this is overdue, like this is a president who has behaved in ways that have courted this kind of response for a long time. But I absolutely appreciate the call. Let's go to let's go to Robert next in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, two quick things. One is um, it seems like Trump got the uh, public announcement of investigation into the Bidens because that's all they're talking about during these impeachment hearings. And um, there's not going to actually be a real investigation. The other thing is I'm wondering legally can, if he does get impeached and get thrown out um, because he has another term, can he still run for a second one? That's a really great question, Robert. What would happen, Barb McQuaid, if he is, let's say he is impeached and somehow the Senate decides to remove him? Could he still be on the ballot next November? Robert, that's such a good question because the answer is it's not clear. Um, one of the things that the Senate can do and sometimes does do when it impeaches others, and it's done this in the case of uh, judges um, and others in impeachment that have received a little less profile than some of the um, you know, the presidential impeachments, is they can take a second vote that says, and this person is barred from forever holding office. Um, but if they don't do that, it isn't clear whether the person can run again. There's a clause in the Constitution that says something like, um, the remedies for impeachment shall not exceed removal from office. 
and disqualification from future office, but it doesn't say that those are the remedies that automatically attach. And so if there's an impeachment and removal from office, you could imagine President Trump um, taking that issue on and saying, I'm running again, and uh, show me in the Constitution where it says I can't. And so if there is not that second vote, I think it is um, uh, unclear whether the Constitution prohibits his running again, which would uh, be a, a really chaotic uh, uh, development if sure. there is a removal from office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine how that would unfold in the courts, especially next year. Uh, uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to the show. Yeah, you know, ditto Tara's remarks. I agree with her wholeheartedly, and great minds do think alike. Um, also, in ter- what did Mulvaney say? We, and I believe this is a direct quote, we do this stuff all the time, okay? But, you know, in terms of the articles of impeachment and that 300-page report, <laughs> there's, a, there's a grain of truth in, in there somewhere. And, you know, and, and I'm going to kind of dovetail on Tara's uh, remarks. I mean, Trump has been nothing but an absolute disgusting, oh, God, I'm running out of adjectives here. (laughs) But, you know, in terms of, you know, where where we have fallen in terms of our relationship with, you know, countries around this world, even, even our allies, I mean, he has been nothing but a you know, like a millstone around a drowning man's neck, and they're never going to get back up to the top of the surface of the water. Yeah. Tom, I appreciate the call and, and the very passionate sentiments there. One thing that that he said, Barb McQuaid, was about Mick Mulvaney, who I think has not done the president any favors with the way he's tried to explain this. I wonder is whether that kind of thing and that kind of testimony – uh, during the impeachment hearings or in the Senate might be the kind of thing that ultimately convinces either Republican members of the Senate or the House to change their minds. I mean, there, there is this sense from the administration that, yeah, we did it, but we just don't think it's wrong. And, and I guess I'm wondering what the limits of that kind of argument might be. I think Mick Mulvaney is the only one of this group who has been honest about what happened, and I think Republicans would have a lot more credibility if they simply embraced what Mick Mulvaney said. This happened. It happens all the time. Uh, There was a quid pro quo. Get over it. Um, It's ugly, but it's true. At least embrace the facts and agree what happened, because I think if you quibble with the facts that, that this didn't happen in some way, you lose all credibility. Instead, say, it happened. It was bad. It was not appropriate. And yet, even though it may be impeachable, uh, we have the choice to choose not to impeach or not to remove from office. Yes, he's been impeached, but we don't think it arises to the level of removal from office in light of the totality of the circumstances. I would disagree with that. And I think one reason they're not taking that position is because they know that most people would disagree with that and find that this behavior, if it occurred, is awful and is Uh, sufficient to remove a president from office. But I think that that's at least an honest argument, and that is one that that Republicans could make in good faith. Instead, they're hiding behind this fiction that it didn't happen, and and that undermines all credibility. Uh, Let's go to Rodney. Rodney in Ann Arbor. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen, Mm -hmm. and thank you, Barbara, for being on. Uh, My question is whether uh, Chief Justice Roberts' 
can on his own compel witnesses like Bolton and the others to testify? Uh, that's a great question, Rodney. We've seen lots of people say, I am not going to comply with subpoenas from various committees in the House of Representatives. Does the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who would preside over the trial in the Senate, have more power to make people show up? Rodney raises a really intriguing possibility. And so what you can imagine how this would play out would be uh, the Democrats in their prosecution of the case would call a witness like John Bolton, um, and John Bolton would re- refuse uh, to comply. And then Justice Roberts, as the presiding judge, could enter an order compelling him to appear. What that would happen, though, or could happen, is that the appeal process under the Senate rules for impeachment is that the Senate gets to decide by majority vote um, whether to overrule the chief justice in that case. So you would need just a majority of uh, the Senate, controlled by the Republicans, to say, mm, nope, uh, Justice Roberts, we, uh, we're going to overrule your ruling. Let's move on. Now, the question that's really intriguing is whether it's different from the two-thirds required for impeachment. It's just a simple majority. And so the Republicans have, I think, 53 members in the Senate. They would need only four members to defect from that position um, as opposed to the 20 who would need to defect for a removal decision. And so that's really interesting, whether um, senators would take the political hit. Imagine that overruling the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who has made a legal ruling and say, we know better, or we care more about politics than the rule of law here. And so would they overrule them, or would four, uh, you know, you can imagine a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski or some others saying, ooh, that's, uh, that's too much, that's a bridge too far, I'm going to let the chief justice's ruling stand here, and let's hear from, from John Bolton. So it, that'll be really interesting to watch play out. And it seems as though Chief Justice Roberts, what I know of him, he may be interested in hearing from some of these witnesses, for instance, who did not testify in the House. Yeah, I think, um, you know, he has his worldview, but I, I think he's a relative straight shooter, and I think it would be difficult for him to, uh, for example, follow these um, assertions of absolute immunity that the Trump administration has been asserting and has now been rejected by every court that has considered it. And so I think that uh, it seems likely that if Justice Roberts rules on the merits, he would order John Bolton to at least appear. He may be able to assert executive privilege with regard to individual questions, but it would not preclude him from showing up. I think another issue that to think about is whether Democrats will risk calling witnesses that they have not had an opportunity to preview. Uh, Prosecutors typically don't put witnesses on the stand cold. You know the old adage about don't ask a witness a question to which you do not know the answer. If you're putting on a witness that you have not previously had an opportunity to hear from, either in a deposition or um, testimony in the impeachment phase, it's a little risky to put them on the stand, especially someone who is aligned with President Trump like, like a John Bolton who might be inclined to spin his testimony in a way that's favorable to President Trump. So it may be that the House Democrats don't want to risk that either. Okay, Barb McQuaid, law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>